I still recall from the books I read All the great empires built in my head But every year I raise one more I poured it out and all dropped off But I Hello and welcome to another homegrown episode of Seeking Tumnus, the podcast where we examine bonza young adult fiction from home and abroad, alternating between the latest and greatest and the books we loved when we were young, dumb and full of a burning desire just to get to the end of the chapter before going to sleep. My name is Laurie and I'm joined by my fellow hosts, the good bloke from the big smoke, Keith Rowe. Hello. The toast of the coast, Patrick Moon. I, I still haven't overcome that urge, actually, to uh, keep reading just one more minute, ten more minutes. Until 2am. Yeah, <laughs> until I look like The Walking Dead the next morning. <laughs> and the city slicker, but let's not bicker, Bree. Hello. For this episode, we'll try and avoid spoilers as best we can, but regular listeners will know we don't practice that skill very often, so best of luck to us all. Why are things a little different this week? Well, we are extremely delighted to have a guest. She's a young, talented Australian author, and we've just read her cracking YA novel, Night Swimming. Welcome, and thank you for joining us, Steph Bow. Hi, thanks for having me. Steph, when Bree picked this book, I'm ashamed to admit it was the first I'd heard of it. For listeners that are yet to pick it up, what can you tell us about the book? Night Swimming is a contemporary YA novel, so... It's about a girl called Kirby who's living in a small town in Australia which she very much loves and has to deal with a whole lot of things that occur suddenly in her life. She finds out that her grandfather has dementia. She finds out where her father has been for a number of years and a beautiful new girl moves to town. Plus there's also lots of random and fun and silly things that happen in her life. She's got a pet goat called Stanley Crop circles have started showing up around town and her best friend, who is obsessed with musical theatre, gets her involved in a number of ridiculous schemes. So it's a little bit serious coming of age and a little bit sort of fun contemporary YA. Fantastic. Would you mind reading a couple of pages from the book? Absolutely. I'll read to you from the start. Great. My name is Kirby Arrow. I was named after the most dissenting judge in the history of the High Court of Australia. That says a lot more about my mum than it does about me. I am 17. There are a lot of songs about being 17, but being 17 doesn't feel like any of them. I have a pet goat named Stanley. He is the son of my first pet goat, Gary. I'm training to be a carpenter. At the end of year 10, as far as our school goes, Mum wanted to send me away to boarding school to get my year 12 certificate. When I told her Mr Poole agreed to take me on as an apprentice, she sighed and said, "'Whatever you want to do, Kirby,' I told her, if it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. (laughs) I was half joking, but her expression stayed serious. My mum is not the talking kind, so it's not like she launched into a tirade about making the most of my opportunities and talents. But from the look on her face, I knew she was thinking it. The thing is, I'm not taking up a trade because it's the only thing I can do. I'd be fine at boarding school, but I like being here with my grandfather. And mum too, for that matter. If I went to boarding school and then university... That would mean being away from home for at least five years, then staying away, most likely, 
because there are no jobs in our town for university graduates. Mum wants me to make something of myself because I'm smart. I don't see why I can't be a carpenter with quantum physics as a hobby. There's always plenty of work if you have a trade. Really, she should be impressed that I'm subverting gender norms. (laughs) My mother runs a business manufacturing soaps made from goat's milk. It's a family tradition, started by my grandfather 40-something years ago. She's expanded into other beauty products in the last few years, creams and lotions and perfumed bath bombs. She isn't very happy doing it, so she doesn't want me involved in the business or eventually taking over, which is disappointing. I think it'd be great. We could label the soaps Arrow and Daughter. I'm sure she'd prefer to leave like my grandmother and Uncle Harry did, but she has to look after Grandad. I don't feel the pull towards the city that everyone else seems to have. There were plenty of kids in town when I was growing up, but everyone's vanished to boarding school. Once they've finished school, they stay in the city, except for my cousin, Nathan, who did the opposite, left the city to live in the middle of nowhere with us. And I'm going to stop there because otherwise I'll just keep reading. I'm actually not opposed to that. Turn it into an audio book. I've got all night. (laughs) Uh, What a treat. Thanks so much, Steph. That was great. This is your third published title. Yes. Pretty incredible at the age of 24 or 23 when Night Swimming came out. Yeah. How did the process compare to your first two novels? Well, with my first novel, I was 15 when I wrote it and got the book deal for it. So I was very much still in that really like enthusiastic and naive (laughs) young writer space. (laughs) So I didn't sort of think or worry a lot about it. I was very fortunate that it got picked up. I wasn't really stressed, I guess, about publishing my first book. And then sort of the process with the second and the third book, I feel like I've grown a lot as a writer, but as a result of being older and having the exposure of having books out there and knowing what people think of them, it was a much more a more thoughtful process, but also a process of really second-guessing myself a lot more than, than when it was the sort of pure joy of, of writing and, and publishing the first book. You said you weren't really stressed out. Were you not thinking of it as a project that might be published at some point and people might read this? Was it more just, I'm going to write something for myself and see what happens? Or was, was there always that idea that this could be out in the world? Well, there was a couple of things. One thing was that I really desperately wanted to be an author, but I didn't think that it would happen for a long time. Like when I first started, Girl Saves Boy was my first book, and when I first started sending it out to publishers and then to agents, I basically thought, okay, I'm going to get rejections for 10 years. And then I, I didn't get rejections for 10 years and things just started happening. <laughs> the second thing was that I was just so enthusiastic about it, so obsessive about it, just absolutely in love with the process of writing it and wasn't really thinking of it as a finished product yet. So yeah, I didn't sort of conceptualize it in the same way that I do now I'm older and have, have written professionally for longer. Hmm. You can really see the layers and of complexity and the intricacy, and it's a really fun novel, this one, Night Swing. Do you think that you'll stay within that young adult genre or do you have aspirations to branch out and do different kinds of writing? I would absolutely love to branch out and do different kinds of writing because obviously I started as a teenager writing for teenagers. I feel like people expected that I would grow out of writing young adult fiction, but I think that children's fiction and young adult fiction requires such a level of subtlety and nuance and thoughtfulness from writers the same as any other genre does. So while I would love to write in different genres, I don't think I'm ever going to get to a point where I'm going to outgrow young adult fiction. I think that's always going to be really significant to me as a person and and as a writer. Hmm. 
I mean, it's those books that you hold on to now as an adult, I find. They touch you at such a young age. You grow with them. So I guess you're preaching to the converted, the four of us. Yeah. You do tend to see authors now a lot of the time growing towards young adult fiction too. They often start out writing for adults essentially and they get a couple of books under their belt and then it seems to be the, the progression nowadays to say, okay, well, I think I'm going to try something a little bit different, shake it up and and try and put out something in that YA space. And I think it can be tough to hit the mark sometimes to get the formula right. Yeah. A writer who's done this really effectively, who's an Australian writer, uh, Christopher Curry, whose first book was a literary novel for adults And then his second book was this amazing young adult novel. And I was just really glad to see someone who's sort of a very serious literary writer to move across to writing YA. That's always exciting to see really talented people seeing it as a, as a, not a genre, but a segment of the market where you can create amazing work and that people of all ages can appreciate. Night Swimming, it's unmistakably Australian in its setting and its characterisation. Was there any pressure, internal or otherwise, to homogenise that setting and the influences in an attempt to maybe remove a potential barrier for overseas readers? Oh, see, maybe if I was better at orienting myself towards trying to appeal to a wider audience, I would have thought in that (laughs) way. Whereas I'm completely self-indulgent and I'm like, because the books that I got so excited to read when I was you know, 14, 15, I was going through the one YA shelf at my local library were the books that were distinctly Australian. And that was what, like when I saw a book and mum was written correctly in it with, you know, M-U-M, <laughs> I was just like, yes, this is a book about my people. So that was really important to me as a young person. And obviously, I, while I would love for my, my books to be published in America because it's a, a big market, I also think that the the Australianness of Australian YA is really important. It was really significant to me. It still is, and I really had a lot of fun in making it re- representative of of Australian language and ways of speaking. Because I, you know, more more characters in books should say yeah nah and actually speak in the way that <laughs> actual Australians speak. I think definitely. I'm glad you took that approach because it's really fantastic to read a book that is so firmly rooted in what it is to be Australian. I don't think it's exclusionary for international readers either. You can celebrate kind of the dichotomy between Australian fiction and North American, British, because there is still with young adult fiction a universal underlying factor, that this commonality to the, the young adult experience. Absolutely. I think you nailed that Australian voice too. There's been a few books that we've read over the past couple of years that have had that Australian setting, and when it's done well, you just you do feel at home. You feel like, yeah, these are my people. This is my setting. This is the kind of stuff that I can really relate to as someone who has grown up in an Australian context, essentially. I read an interview that you did uh, a few years ago with the Sydney Morning Herald on a, on a different note, and uh, you were lamenting the prevalence at that time of, quote, abusive vampire boyfriends in young adult fiction, which is something that I have ranted about a few times on the podcast. Do you think that tide has started to turn a little bit in young adult fiction? Are are we still fighting that fight against toxic relationships and things being held up as ideal or exemplified in literature for younger people? See, I I worry that I'm not, I haven't got the most accurate picture because I tend to, I really now have a clear idea of the kind of books that I really like to read. And I also don't have the time to read as widely as I would as I wish I could, and to have that sort of Mm. broad understanding because I'm not reading much in the way of the paranormal romance these days. 
But I think across the board, YA is going in a really terrific direction in terms of how socially engaged and diversity-oriented YA is now. Like, it's really sort of at the forefront of social change, and there's a lot more, like, really awesome, diverse, marginalised writers who are writing own voices stuff. And I haven't seen anywhere near as much of the Edward Cullen-type characters who I loathed as a teenager sort of in the books being published today. But I don't know whether that's because I'm now being very selective in what I read because (laughs) I just have even less tolerance for it now that I am an adult. Would you just put a book down 10 pages in if you started to see that develop? I always had that problem where I'm like, I've started this, I have to finish it. I've subjected myself to it and I can't back down now. As a teenager, like I read so voraciously and I basically had that thing of, I have to finish this. And that competitive thing with reading from doing the MS Readathon as a kid where I'm like, I have to finish books. (laughs) My donor's are counting on me. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I'm getting paid per book here. Yeah. Whereas now I'm sort of, I have so little time for reading for enjoyment that, and also I read so many eBooks where I'm just like, okay, I'm just going to go to the next thing. If if I hit something where I'm like, "Mm, this is going to annoy me because it's a value system that I am not on board with, then I just... It's not worth the very limited reading time when there's so many awesome books out there that need readers and need to be celebrated. In that vein, Night Swimming was fantastic in the characterization, the the selection of characters, the range of experience, the cultural backgrounds, different genders, sexuality. There was fairly sensitive handling of aging and dementia, a really broad base of issues and handled in a really nice way, I think, compared to a lot of young adult fiction. Was that a conscious pushback on your part, do you think, in in saying, no, I'm going to make something that's representative, I'm going to make something that runs counter to the zeitgeist of young adult fiction? Or is it, again, you just sort of sitting down and just writing what you want to write and happily it, it comes out in that way? Uh, it was a combination of a couple of things. So I think one thing is that I, I as a writer, was reaching or I feel like I have reached a point where I'm much more comfortable exploring things outside of, not outside of the norm, but there's such an idea in fiction, not so much now we're going in a really good direction, but in the past of the idea of a default person who's white and heterosexual and cisgender and Mm. able-bodied. And I sort of started to feel as if I was prepared to actually properly engage with writing characters who are mixed race, who are different sexual orientations, things like that. And I also was really heavily inspired by a lot of people doing a lot of really interesting and engaging writing online and also in fiction writing about diversity and writing about the importance of representing real, like, because real people and, and real Australians are diverse as a group and you don't want to, it really sanitizes your work when you don't have that there. So I was very much inspired by the amount of great new diverse writers, great new writing about diversity that people were doing. And I really felt prepared to start sort of engaging with it, drawing from my own experience even, and writing about things in a in a more in a way that has more depth and more nuance and and represents people as they actually are, rather than you know I'm not I'm not trying to promote a a social agenda or anything like that. I'm just trying to write a story that is realistic because people are all different sexual orientations and people are all different ethnicities and cultures and people like. I personally drew on my experience of having a relative with dementia. So I really wanted to depict things in a way that was realistic. I think you nailed that. You're right in that that is Australian culture, Australian society. And so maybe the way that we are here in Australia and trying to accurately portray Australian 
culture, trying to give it a real Australian voice is a, a good context yeah. for portraying a diverse society, portraying diversity in characters. And it's fantastic. Thank you. Yeah, that's why it was so believable and engaging. As much as we love discovering new young adult content, the origins of Seeking Tumness are rooted in a desire to revisit books that we read in our youth and as children. What were your favourite books growing up? Uh, should I go as early as possible and then work through yeah. time? All right, so the first book I can remember reading and, and like adoring, being obsessed with, was Eric Carle's The Very Hungry Caterpillar. And it was like <laughs> the first time, because I, I as a small child and I also as an adult am obsessed with, with stories and with food. So to me as a small child, I also loved The Lighthouse Keeper's Lunch. Great pictures of food. Perfect crossover for you. I was absolutely obsessed with that book and, and read it obsessively. And then as I got a little bit older, I adored Enid Blight and I loved The Magic Faraway Tree to a degree where when I was seven and I was first trying to write a novel, I wrote a story that basically amounted to The Magic Faraway Escalator. Um, so it's like identical in every way, but it was an escalator because I, you know, that was my reference point as a child. And then I, I sort of got a little bit older. I moved on to reading just anything that was a massive series, like those huge series of the Saddle Club books, Animorphs, all of those things where there were like a hundred books and you could read them all out of order. Like I loved those sorts of things. Animorphs was my jam when I was a kid. I couldn't get enough of the Animorphs. And I'm nodding along at the Pony Club. <laughs> <laughs> when you were talking about mum being spelt correctly in Australian literature, I just thought back to like, no, I think I was raised on mom on in uh, Animorphs pretty much and Goosebumps. It's funny because I think I was so excited to see mum because so many of the books that I had read were so American-oriented as a kid. I don't know why. Yeah. But then anyway, I after that I moved on to YA probably when I was like nine or ten. So my reading level was up there, but my content-wise, I don't know if I was prepared for it. And I absolutely adored Melina Marquetta's novels. I was absolutely obsessed with, with her as a young teenager and also with a couple of awesome other female Australian writers. I loved Simone Howell's books and Kath Crowley's novels. That's a pretty comprehensive overview of your your reading habits. It sounds diverse. Yeah. I feel like I've missed out heaps of amazing things, though, because I just read so much as as a kid. Like, it's extraordinary to me as an adult how much I read as a child. I don't know how I had how I managed it. I read The Hobbit when I was, like, eight. I'm amazed by myself. <laughs> that sounds weird, but it's like I don't read anywhere near as prolifically now I'm older. Yeah, and it doesn't get any easier as you get older still, so <laughs> do your best to keep up the reading. <laughs> The Magic Faraway Tree was one of Bree's favourites as well, and uh, we revisited it, and it was uh, <laughs> maybe not worth revisiting. <laughs> as adults, it was very challenging. I think it was a struggle when we didn't have the fond memories. Oh, don't say that. But you all enjoyed Anne of Green Gables. <laughs> it's funny that you mentioned uh, books that included f food in them, and the, the other hosts will laugh at this one but I used to read a series called Red Wall by Brian Jakes and it was about mice and otters and badgers all fighting evil rats and weasels and things like that but one of the things I really loved about the book is they always had these magnificent feasts yeah. and they always had things like elderberry cordial and all sorts of scrumptious things 
that you'd never eat in real life, but in these books they sounded amazing. Descriptions of food are just the best thing in books. Like, I feel like I do a lot of that in my own writing because I love it so much. I'm like, I'll describe a lamington now. That's <laughs> <laughs> my favourite. There were a lot of references to lamingtons <laughs> and lamingtons with or without jam in Night Swimming. It was a bit of a recurring theme. I'm a bit obsessed. <laughs> Definitely with jam, though, right? Yeah, oh, 100%. I think we're all on board with the mixed lollies as well. Yeah. For sure. The small town feel of the fictitious Alberton was genuine and for me it conjured up thoughts of the regional Australian towns that I've been to and more likely through. Was it based on anywhere in particular? Uh, Not on anywhere in particular. I took little bits from lots of different things. So as a kid we had lots of road trips driving from Victoria up to Queensland and going through all sort of country Victorian and New South Wales towns. So taking lots of details from there as a kid and also I sort of reimagined the main street from the not a country town, but a regional sort of town where I grew up outside Melbourne. That was my model for the main street. So I was sort of combining just elements from different places I'd visited and different places I'd I'd lived rather than basing it on, on any one place because I get frustrated if I have to base it on a on a real place. I want to be able to make things up and also insult the place a little bit, which you don't want to do with real places. <laughs> That's a great point. You did a really good job of that. Oh, thank you. Speaking of fictional cities, would you rather be in Alberton fighting zombies or in Wirrawee defending Australia from unnamed invaders from the north? Oh, that's true. I had a bet with Laurie that Wirrawee wouldn't ring a bell. Is Wirrawee John Marsden or... Oh, yeah. Yeah. Laurie wins. Thank you. I win. <laughs> I haven't read that in such a long time. I definitely think I would deal better with zombies than with people. It depends what kind of zombies they are, though. Are they slow-moving or fast-moving? Oh, that's a tough (laughs) call. Let's say slow-moving, like a slow-moving country town. Yep, I'd definitely do better with the zombies than with an army of actual people. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I think so. Either way, I'm not going to last long, but I think I'll have more (laughs) fun with the zombies. Uh, It's like Patrick, every time we bring up a theoretical like that, he's just like, I'm just going to lie down and die. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that's just the most realistic scenario. I'm just being a realist. Who would want to live in the world if it's overrun with zombies anyway? (laughs) True. Uh, We have an ongoing friendly debate about 13 Reasons Why, centred on the quality of the book versus the recent Netflix series. Have you consumed both of those? I've read the book, but I haven't seen the series. Oh, okay. Good choice. Yeah. Keep it that way. I read it when I was quite young, and I think my experience of it as a book, if I revisited it now, I don't know if I would like it or if I I liked it as a young person, but I don't know if I'd like it. Now I'm older, and I thought, okay, that's not for me anymore. I'm a little bit too – I think I'm past that age. Yep. It's a very polarising series. Right. I really love reading character-driven fiction. You get a real sense of the attachment the author has with their characters, and I definitely felt that throughout Night Swimming. And it wasn't just with Kirby, Clancy, and Iris, but beyond that to their families. For you, were the characters the starting point for writing Night Swimming? Yeah, absolutely. My characters are, are always the starting point because I'm not very good at writing plot, which <laughs> I find if I, I, I tend to have a clear idea of character to begin with and then build the plot and build the story around them based on who they are. You've punctuated the plot with some really fantastic and, as you alluded to in the intro, the the fun night swimming, climbing up the ladder in the middle of the night, crop circles, those sorts of things. Have you ever done anything a little bit out of the ordinary for friendship or romance or love? 
I'm going to be really boring and say, no, I don't think I have. <laughs> I'm a very sensible, well-behaved, risk-averse sort of person, which is why I love books and why I love writing, because you don't have to go anywhere to explore all of these sort of different <laughs> stories and worlds. I'm, I'm very much an indoors person. Is there a bit of a thrill for you in sort of writing a ladder being propped up against someone's house in the middle of the night and just thinking, I would never do this, I would oh, never absolutely. do this? And I, and I also have to like consciously check myself in terms of what I think is bad behaviour or out there behaviour for teenagers because I have such a tame life and an idea of things that I would do. I'm like, oh, they shouldn't be drinking. I'm very sort of <laughs> worried about them. So I sort of have to actually check in with actual young people and, and talk to them and be like, okay, what's realistic rather than me and my, my nana ways. <laughs> so you started out as somebody from Victoria, close to Melbourne, and you're up in Queensland now. How does the coffee compare? I'm on the Gold Coast, so it's not... There's Some places have good coffee and other places <laughs> don't have good coffee. It's definitely not the same <laughs> as, as being in a city, though, I think. <laughs> I think coffee in any city always tends to be better. Sometimes you stumble across a diamond in the rough, but you don't really move to the Gold Coast for the coffee. I think this question has been inserted just as a subtle dig at the Sydney siders here as an attempt to talk up <laughs> Melbourne's coffee again under the veiled pretense of an interview with an author. <laughs> Night Swimming is a book of seasons, but metaphors aside, what is your favourite place in Australia in a particular season? Oh, that's a really tricky question. I grew up in the Dandenong Ranges, and the Dandenong Ranges were absolutely beautiful in the spring, a little bit cold, but I do love Gold Coast winters when it's like really mild and beautiful and you can still go to the beach. But I can't pick one. Can you think of your least favourite? Least favourite. At the moment, I'm not enjoying autumn on the Gold Coast because it's incredibly hot and humid still. So, But that's because I'm currently in the middle of it. Later in the year, I'll probably be like, oh, no, it wasn't that bad. But right now, I'm just it's just humid. Great. <laughs> Thanks, Steph. What's next for you? Any news that Seeking Tumnus can exclusively break? Oh, not really because I don't... I'm working on another um, contemporary YA novel, but I'm still so sort of early in the process that I'm worried about jinxing it if I talk about it because I'm very superstitious in that way. <laughs> Fair enough. I am working on another contemporary YA novel and it's slow going, but uh, hopefully I'll, I'll have something done this year. Oh, that's exciting. You seem to move along at a pretty cracking pace. Three novels over the past few years. It hasn't been that long since your debut, really. No, well, it's been... I'm 24 now. My first one came out when I was 16. So... I've had a few years in between to sort of develop as a writer and grow as a writer, and I hope that's reflected in improvements from book to book. Oh, we look forward to the next one. Thank you. Where can we find you online? I write a blog at stephbow.com, though it's now infrequently updated, and I also am on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, all as at stephbow. You've got that premium domain name there your actual name it doesn't have six numbers or anything after it on your instagram tag and whatever yeah when i was how old was i when i was 15 and i first like bought my domain name of stephbo.com i was like i'm a real person now like i exist <laughs> <laughs> prior to that i was at you know dot blogspot i wasn't legitimate but after that i existed yeah you don't <laughs> exist until you have a domain name of your own name yeah really. it's very important in the modern world 
guys, I think I'm having a crisis. I don't have one. <laughs> We've got seeking timers. We'll just go with that. I've actually already registered lorrybeige.com online, so I'll sell it to you. at a. We can negotiate offline. <laughs> Thanks so much, Steph. It's been fantastic to have you on. Thank you we for having me. look forward to your next work. Wonderful. Fabulous. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks. It's always tricky, isn't it, guys? We've only done this a couple of times, actually speaking with an author, but there's that fear that you've booked in an author to talk to and you have to read the book and you wonder to yourself, what if it's terrible? <laughs> I was just thinking about this earlier today and why don't we read the book first before we, <laughs> before we even mention it to anybody? Because I don't know what I would do if it was like, and thank Christ that the books we have read thus far and we've spoken to the author have been actually good books that I've enjoyed. But holy shit, I would explode. I would just... You talk about me lying down and dying during the zombie apocalypse, but <laughs> if I had to talk to an author and then savage their book afterwards, I, I would prefer <laughs> to just die. <laughs> I did start reading this one before we locked it in, guys, so you had my taste to fall back on. <laughs> there was a bit of a safety net there, Keith. Yeah, well, if you go with my taste. Yeah. How often have we aligned in our tastes, Keith? <laughs> well, as long as there's one of us who's willing to put up a stolid defense of the book, then I, I'm happy with it. But if, can you imagine signing off, and especially with someone as lovely as Steph, and she logs off and then we both go, hmm, pity about the book though. <laughs> <laughs> I have to admit, I was so, so dubious about this book. The synopsis in no way does the book justice, in my opinion. Mm. The humor of the book and the authenticity of the characters, it just wasn't conveyed by the synopsis. Even the name Clancy had me cringing, as it seemed, at first glance, to be cliched to the point of almost parody. And yet, this book is everything that I thought it wouldn't be. It's genuine, it's unique, but it's got that universality. It's hilarious at times, but most of all, it's really touching, without resorting to any of those cheap tricks that we were talking about that haunt some of the YA fiction of the last decade. I can't speak for the LGBTIQ community, but... I can't see any obvious missteps in the portrayal of either Iris or Kirby. It felt just really nice. And while there were some moments of angst, it was the kind of romance that I hope all young people experience in their young adult lives. I think it's because it wasn't just about that, though. Mm. It was something that was, it was just an element of a story. It just was. There wasn't any differentiation. Mm. It just was. I was thinking about that myself and the term that came to mind for me was that it was a sort of effortless romance and then I pulled myself back a little bit and thought, well, is there anything effortless about being a, a young gay person in a rural Australian community? But perhaps natural is the, a better term to describe it. It just it, it flowed so nicely with the book as a whole and encompassed everything in the book, but it wasn't all-consuming either. It just right. it existed in a really well-fashioned kind of way, I suppose, from Steph's perspective. It was very nicely written, very nicely created, very nicely handled. The diversity wasn't showboated at all. It was just part of the fabric of that town and the characters. It was really, mm. really well represented. Yeah. Because you never want to sledge someone for trying and trying hard to put something together that gives a voice to people who oftentimes lack a voice or a representation in contemporary media. Yeah, sometimes it is ham-fisted, especially when you're attempting to write a really diverse group of characters and you can't, as an author, be from all of those communities at the same time. Yep. 
you're going to have to step outside and you're going to have to at times give voice to people who you don't have direct experience with in your own life and it's admirable when it's done well yeah you can't call out anything from this book and say that's misrepresentative i think it was just so well done on the uh, topic of synopsis though i think it's character driven stuff that's just so hard to write a synopsis for you really need to read Mm. books character driven stuff to get a feel for them yeah even uh, the mention of Stanley, the, the pet goat in the synopsis, I just thought, <laughs> oh, that's a bit quirky, I guess. But then actually reading the book, you fall in love with Stanley, who may well have been one of my favourite characters. <laughs> Stanley was phenomenal. I was desperately tortured. We won't spoil too much, but there was one moment in the book where things are looking a bit perilous for Stanley and someone else. Mm. And uh, I was genuinely concerned for his welfare. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say you were desperately upset that Stanley didn't start talking partway through the book. Stanley is definitely more than a gag Yeah, I thought all of the characters were pretty solidly fleshed And and the setting itself In my notes I wrote Painted with the artistry of a small town native (laughs) (laughs) I'm not quite from a small town I'm from Tamworth I grew up in Tamworth And just outside of Tamworth I think that qualifies as small town That definitely qualifies You grew up on the river flats Swimming in the river and all those things and any time when you say I grew up outside of, insert regional community here. Yeah, true. I just thought she captured the small town community and very small or low infrastructure and, and how that affects people's lives very well. It was great. I also like from the young adult aspect, the fear, the irrational and otherwise fear and the insecurities that are entwined with teenagership and forming an identity that were so nicely realised in the book and it made the characters complex and flawed but ultimately substantiated and relatable. That's, for me, talking as no longer a young adult, it was still very relatable. That extended beyond, like you've said there, to the parents as well. There was no tropes with the parents. They were all different. They were all complex, particularly Kirby's mum. I thought it was nice to see a portrayal of a mother figure that didn't feel stereotypical in any way. I had a note about that as well, the teenage style angst and the internal dialogue that goes on when you're in your first relationship or I guess the first part of all relationships really and even into one's 30s if I'm completely honest. <laughs> but uh, I think that that dialogue that Kirby has as she and Iris are starting to sort of realise their bond is really well done. I just heard so many echoes of my own life and my own sort of experience do you folks have the same thing do you have that internal dialogue back in your teenage and 20s and whatever i don't know when it ends but definitely (laughs) in addition to what we've said already it was at its core very warm-hearted and even through the difficult moments that shone through and that's partly through the humor in the book which laurie's touched on it was there throughout and there was self-awareness in the book but there was nothing obnoxious or grating about it I like the puns in there in particular, sometimes coming from the parents, but Iris as well was a a fan of a bit of punnery. I really enjoyed that and thought Laurie might as well. Oh, I I definitely did. Not just the puns, but they were... But mostly the puns. (laughs) (laughs) Particularly the puns, yes. But there were so many chuckle out loud moments. I was reading it next to Brie at one point and I was chuckling. I had to turn to her and say, what percentage of the book are you at now? And (laughs) highlight something to go back and address with her later. It was just, it was fun. I walked away from reading this book with a smile on my face. And some young adult fiction that we've read just didn't do that. Not all of them obviously are trying to be funny. Some of them are a lot more serious. But the ones that tried and failed didn't hold a light up to this book. I was surprised and delighted, which is a big relief when you're asking the author to visit the show. (laughs) 
I appreciated that it didn't deal with romance so much as it dealt with love. And I say that with very fond memories of the books that I read as a teenager. There are some great examples from our youth and I would put Tomorrow When the War Began in that, which I adored. But I overwhelmingly feel like that was more of an exception than a rule when we were growing up. And I'd have much stronger memories of Judy Bloom and Paula Danziger, which graced the shelves of all my friends. And those were really reality style, light romance novels. Whereas this is about love, love between friends, between your grandfather and appreciating those moments or those sparks as you see somebody on a downward spiral. And love for a practical, logical mother who is likable in her own way, but isn't the traditional sort of mold, which is a relief. (laughs) We Mm. don't all have to be the same and aspire to be perfect. And I feel like it dealt with all of those things so beautifully. It was more than just teen romance. Yeah, it made those moments of comfort and I don't know what you'd call them, but it made those moments with Kirby's mother much more, it gave them a greater impact. Mm. It was pretty phenomenal, in fact. For a 300-page book, the amount of topics and areas that this book covered off while still remaining relatable to older readers... I want to touch on Iris because I really enjoyed the way we saw Iris firstly through Kirby, but as their relationship or their friendship developed, we saw the true side of Iris, not just what she was presenting to this new town that she'd moved to and that she'd been suffering from depression and had all these internal struggles that she was able to hide from the public eye. But it highlights not only that aspect of it that we put on a face for the public, but also that from Kirby's perspective, you can be blind to those sort of characteristics in people when you adore them or when you're so fond of them. I think she was such a good candidate for a romance as well, which is something that I feel you shouldn't have to say all the time as a disclaimer in young adult fiction. But in line with the question that I was asking Steph about these characters that have cropped up in young adult romances in the past who are just awful, awful people who act in this rejecting, cold, borderline abusive kind of fashion towards the protagonists, and that almost seems to be the attraction. I think Iris stands so far apart from that in that she is just this exceptional person who is open and and caring and friendly and accepting. And a book like this shows that you can sustain interest and you can sustain conflict as far as a plot goes for the length of a novel yet still have a romantic lead who is fundamentally balanced and healthy and romantically available and an exemplar of a relationship that you would be like cheering for your your kid to have was it you Laurie who said you know this is you hope that 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 young people can go out and experience a romance like this or a love like this in their in their formative years yeah absolutely that's the kind of thing that you hope for people There's no way you would ever say the same about Edward Cullen, which (laughs) there's a level of conflict and and whatnot that makes for engaging reading at points, although, you know, even that is debatable in that variety of fiction. But you just wouldn't hope that for young people. And I think there is some value in having at least some literature out there in the world that is a little bit aspirational, that does show a bit of an example for the way that things can be like kind of modeling healthy happy life for people to some extent and that doesn't mean there's no conflict there's no drama but it can exist it can be out there and it it, it is helpful and useful and readable definitely readable Hmm. all right well i think that pretty much covers it off it's that time our favorite time scoring with keith hello 
Thanks for joining. <laughs> oh, no, let's not do this. This is. I think it just shriveled up and fell off. Spe- <laughs> Speaking of food, which you we were earlier, it's great to hear Steph's enthusiasm for food in books because my scoring system is food based. Was it one snakes and red frogs senselessly lost in a natural disaster? Just hard to comprehend. Oh, I'm glad you went with senselessly lost in a natural disaster because I thought snakes and red frogs were going to be your one out of five star rating for a minute there which is not acceptable or accurate no definitely not (laughs) was it two a cardboard tasting pub parma uninspired and forgettable was it three a cup of milo with a heavy imbalance towards milo rich rewarding and really good for you because it's low gi not medical advice (laughs) 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 was it four garlic naan (laughs) <laughs> I'm dying <laughs> You need some Milo, get him some quick uh, Was it four, garlic naan, delicious and filling Or was it five, mixed lollies A wonderfully complex assembly of the finest flavours Delicately balanced to perfection hmm. This was five stars Full of raspberry creams and pineapples And musk sticks and milk bottles oh, Musk, musk sticks. sticks? Come musk on! Sticks are and great. Coke bottles. I won't hear a word against it musk sticks. It was full Ugh. of them all. Musk sticks are offensive to other lollies to the point oh, where they imbue the taste upon them. I want Brie to make my mixed lolly bags. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Pat. You can come to my kids' parties anytime. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a five from Brie. You might want to come at the end. There's no lollies left at the end. I'm going to come at the beginning. I, I've bulked up enough that I feel like I can shoulder my way to the front of the table to get the, <laughs> the lolly bags now. <laughs> It's five stars for me. I loved it. It was intricate and it was complex and it made me laugh. It was great. Keith, what about you? For me, it's a five as well. Mixed lollies, who can go past them? I just loved reading this book. It was a diversion from what we've been reading lately or what I've been reading lately. So I just enjoyed it so much. Yeah, I'm the same. I wondered to myself, oh, what has Brie picked for us now? (laughs) And she's picked a five-star lolly bag. It was just Great. Loved it. Did you know what you were picking for a spree? Or was this a dart thrown blindly in the hope of hitting a bullseye? When I picked Lorinda, I also looked at the previous one of hers, I think. And then I noticed that she'd had a more recent one come out. And I thought, oh, gosh. And also that got something published at 16. Maybe we should give that a crack. But then this was her most recent one. So I thought we'd pick this one up instead. Mm. This was far better than Lorinda, though. I also put on the list from when the book was coming out and there was interest in it on Twitter from other authors and whatnot. Yeah. I had it in my sights from then and Bree's thankfully run with it. Mm. Bree has thrown her dart and avoided scoring any of us. <laughs> she has. In Michael Kirby uh, fashion, I am going to be the, the lone dissenter. I'm going to give it a, uh, a garlic naan. Mm. I did love it. I really liked it. I found it light and happy and enjoyable and beautifully diverse. And really, I'm, I'm only giving it a garlic naan to be the dissenter. <laughs> four, four out of five stars for me. Is that because I mentioned that I was somehow involved in this book selection? Yeah, it was uh, six out of five until then, Keith. And then I thought... <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Well, thank you once again to author Steph Bow for popping on. Please go buy her book, Night Swimming. It was a really funny adorable but richly layered book that more than deserves its place next to Australian classics such as Looking for Alibrandi. Also, if you're not Australian, 
I think it would be a really good book to to read if you're interested in a little bit of what it's like to be a young Australian growing up in a an Australian context. Oh God, I sounded very Australian when I said that. Then this is a really good place to start. See if you can grab it on Amazon. I totally agree. Let me just read my next sentence. <laughs> I really dug it, and I think it has something for everyone especially our international listeners who'd like a fun look at a small town (laughs) if fictional Australia. (laughs) Next episode, we're bringing out the big guns with one of the best-regarded fantasy novels of all time. For 50 years, A Wizard of Earthsea... Oh, banging. Oh, I thought it was going to be The Hobbit. (laughs) ...has glimmered as one of the shining gems of literature, and I, for one... Can't wait to hear these clowns shit on it from a great height. <laughs> oh. Well, this is my selection, so I, I won't be shitting on it from any height. <laughs> what if it's bad, Keith? <laughs> well, <laughs> it's been a while since I've read it. I'm assuming it will hold up. I have such fond memories of this book. This is going to be hellacious if it doesn't hold up. But of course it's going to hold up. Right. I'm sure it will. I loved it to death. I've never heard of it. We literally talked about it <laughs> last episode. <laughs> and, yeah, I've kept popping in questions from it in trivia that I've done previously and all sorts. I ignored it all. <laughs> I have to hold my hand up and say that I kept bumping this for other books and sadly in that time, Ursula Le Guin has passed. So I thought I had to move this right up now uh, as a tribute. Well, mm. it's timely. I'm looking forward to it. Mm. And I believe that this year is the actual 50th anniversary, so... That too. I had that in mind as well, obviously. Sure you did. <laughs> <laughs> That's already scouring the internet for the 50th anniversary hardcover special edition book. <laughs> I like to have some hardcovers on my shelves. What can I say? What's in a name? Find out soon on Seeking Tumnus. Until then, if you're acting the goat in troubled times... Snuggle up with a friend, talk out your problems, and keep reading. Thank you so much for jumping online with us. It's, it's always good to get a, the author's perspective rather than just us sitting around spitballing. So it's, uh, it's fantastic. Thank you for having me. Hopefully I haven't rambled and gone off on bizarre tangents. No. <laughs> That's what the entire podcast is about. <laughs> it wouldn't be right if you didn't. We're experts at that. <laughs> Do we have any other commentary that we all want to add? Is it? points that we've missed that you want to chip in with anyone we should have congratulated steph on night swimming being listed as a notable book in the children's book council of australia for this year oh make a mention of it at the end surely that's not as an impressive achievement as what we're about to give it as a rating <laughs> on seeking tumness <laughs> that's true <laughs> should have to add this onto her side <laughs>